0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Thank you to all the new listeners and subscribers, and of course, to all my original listeners and subscribers. I love the true crime community, and knowing people are enjoying this podcast is a dream come true for me. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com, And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. Now, without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. An annual migration of teenagers and college students floods the beaches and resort towns and cities of the southern United States. While some of the millions that gather on the sandy shores and overcrowded bars and nightclubs are locals, the vast majority are from high schools and colleges in the much colder northern half of the country. Spring Break runs through the months of March and April and destinations like Myrtle Beach, South Carolina rely on the economical boost that accompanies the craziness. Located just a short drive from the border with North Carolina, Myrtle Beach sits in the middle of a crescent-shaped cutout of the Atlantic Ocean and offers warm spring days and comfortable spring nights for those looking to have fun all day and into the early morning hours but the influx of strangers combined with the use of alcohol and recreational drugs does does create an atmosphere with the potential for crime and sometimes even murder. It was April 25th, 2009, and 17-year-old Brittany Drexel was running out of steam on her spring break adventure. Wanting to trade the more tepid New York Spring for the warmer and more wild South Carolina atmosphere, she had tricked her parents into thinking she was staying at a friend's house in New York for a few days and instead had caught a ride with some acquaintances to Myrtle Beach. Taking risks and defying your parents is, all too often, a staple of teenagers around the world, and Brittany was no different. She had asked to go on this trip, but had been shot down on numerous occasions. What her parents didn't know couldn't hurt her, or so she thought. The high temperature that day had been an average of 80 degrees Fahrenheit, 27 degrees Celsius, and the cooler evening air was sitting at a very comfortable 70 degrees Fahrenheit, or 21 degrees Celsius. It had been a perfect weather day, but Brittany's trip was going anything but perfect. The friends she had traveled down with were not close friends, and after a few days and evenings and a long, cramped car ride, followed by cramped accommodations, restless sleep, and a lot of alcohol and hangovers, everyone was on edge. Brittany was by far the most outcast of the group and had started to feel targeted by the other girls she was with. As a result, on the evening of April 25th, she had decided to take a solo walk from the hotel she was staying in to a resort nearby. A friend of hers was there from New York who happened to also be in Myrtle Beach that evening and she met up with him for a short visit before this visit was interrupted by one of the girls she traveled down with. She had also been texting her boyfriend John Greco, who had stayed back in New York due to his work schedule and updating him on the trip and how she was feeling. Suddenly the text stopped and John got worried. He called everyone he knew that was vacationing in Myrtle Beach that week and no one could find Brittany. John finally made the call he had avoided making and called Brittany's mom to tell her what had happened. It took a second or two for Don Drexel to understand what John was telling her. As far as she knew, Brittany couldn't be missing Myrtle Beach since she was a short drive away in New York. Quickly, the entirety of the situation set in and Don contacted Rochester, New York police in an effort to have them work with Myrtle Beach PD to try and locate Brittany. The following morning, April 26th, Brittany still hadn't returned to the hotel room or made contact with John or any family members, and Myrtle Beach police began looking for her. So will take a second, step aside, and we'll talk about just what's going on here. Basically, you know, Don has just found out that her daughter is quite a distance away from where she actually thought she was. She's been in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina for the last few days, not New York, and now nobody can find her daughter. So of course she's going to be freaking out, but... At the same time, if she calls down to Myrtle Beach, she doesn't know what her daughter's wearing, she doesn't know where her daughter's staying, she doesn't know the, the car that she went down there with likely at this point, so it's going to be very tough because basically it's, a, it's beyond a needle in a haystack at that point, point. and the Myrtle Beach police are likely going to say, well you didn't even know she was down here and now she won't answer your phone calls that's not surprising and 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 so it's going to be a very difficult missing person report. and maybe i didn't read this but maybe they got some kickback because they might have called myrtle beach south carolina first and they guess kind of said there's not much we can do here so they called their local police department and said can you you know help us out here because sometimes the seemingly distraught and in this case justifiably distraught parent calling a police department doesn't get the same reaction as one police department reaching out to the other saying, Hey, do us a solid here. Can you look for this girl? We got a worried mother here. So that's what my guess is what's going on, kind of behind the scenes here. But we'll get into that a little bit more a little bit later as well. But so let's talk about who Brittany was. Brittany was born on October seventh, nineteen ninety one in Rochester, New York. Her father was of Turkish descent and both her biological parents were teenagers when she was born and never got married. While Brittany was still an infant, Dawn, her mother, met Chad Drexel, a military man, and Chad would actually legally become Brittany's father through adoption. Dawn and Chad got married, and Brittany was given the last name Drexel. After Chad's military service ended, they lived in the Rochester, New York suburb of Chile. Now, Brittany was blind in her right eye, a side effect of many surgeries that attempted to treat an eye disorder she was born with. It also affected the movement of her right eye, and she chose to wear contacts that helped correct the issue. The contacts, along with her father's Turkish ancestry, gave her a very unique look, and she was described as being strikingly pretty. At just five feet tall and an athletic 100 pounds, Brittany was fit, attractive, and always dressed in the latest teenage fashion trends. She was a star soccer player, was studying cosmetology, and had aspirations of becoming a nurse. For spring break 2009, she had approached her mother and asked her for permission to head south with a group of people she knew but wouldn't exactly call friends. Her mother Don was strongly against it because Brittany was only 17 and there would be no parental supervision and Don didn't know the other kids that she was traveling with. Brittany did have reasons she wanted to go on this trip. Her parents Don and Chad were going through a divorce, she was having relationship issues with her boyfriend John, and her family was losing their home. The trip was to be a short escape for Brittany and a chance to clear her head, but Don held her ground and refused to allow Brittany to go, even telling her, if you go to Myrtle Beach, something is going to happen to you. Now, I'll take another side here. As a parent myself, I look at this and I can definitely see where Don is coming from. First off, just the fact that she's probably going to look back on her own experiences being a pregnant teenager, that she doesn't want that. happen to her child so going to a spring break destination where there's gonna be alcohol and wildness and all that kind of stuff with no parental supervision is gonna be bad enough but going with a bunch of friends that the mom doesn't even know is going to set off every red flag possible so had this been something where Brittany was gonna go down with her best friend and her best friend's mom or you know, some type of best friend's parent or something along those lines, I don't think Don would have said no. I don't think she was trying to deny Brittany an opportunity to you know enjoy life and especially at this time in her life, get away from everything. Don was just being a very protective mother based on her own experiences and knowing what could potentially go wrong with her going down there. And, and when she actually used that phrase, if you go to Myrtle Beach, something is going to happen to you, I definitely don't think she meant... That she was gonna you know be abducted or or in this case, you know, go missing or whatever. I, I'm assuming she probably meant like a teenage pregnancy situation or something along those lines, and she's just being that protective mother. After arguing about the trip with her mother all day, Brittany seemed to back down and then asked about staying at one of her friends' houses near Charlotte Beach in North Carolina. Now Charlotte Beach is a beach and pier on Lake Ontario on the north side of Rochester. So this is not gonna be Myrtle Beach for sure, but at least it's a chance for her to get out of the house because I'm sure there's a lot of drama at this point. So Don agrees and Brittany said there would be parental supervision. And in this case, it's with one of her good friends and Don knows this friend. So Brittany's able to convince her mother to let her go stay at this house for a few days. And Brittany even called to apologize to her mom later in the day saying she was sorry for all the drama. We know now that Brittany's actually making this phone call to Don while she's, you know, I'm assuming while the car stopped somewhere at a gas station or something on the way down to Myrtle Beach. A handful of people knew Brittany's true plans, but Don and Chad were left in the dark. Brittany called Don the following day and some of the days after, and it was said that she just kind of acted like she was at her friend's house in New York, just just to check in so her mom wouldn't worry about her. I mean, she had this thing pl- well planned out and and meanwhile she's secretly down in Myrtle Beach this whole time. And Don was happy her daughter seemed to be having a good time was clearing her head. Meanwhile, Brittany's using this to as an opportunity to hide the fact that she's staying in Myrtle Beach. And it sounds like in some of the research that the the trip originally was going well for Brittany, but as the hours passed, little spats between her and the girls started happening, the girls that she traveled down there with, and they started to get more and more ugly. And it's one of those cases where if you're going down with a group of three good friends and maybe you know one of the girls, you had a class with her or played on a sports team with her or something, so you know of her. So it's not like you're riding down with strangers, but the people that she's friends with might be... Somewhat strange to you, at least people you don't normally talk to or hang out with, and there's a good chance that you're going to have personality conflicts or issues. And it sounds like that's kind of what was going on here. And also, when you have that group mentality, there's three friends that are close, and then the one outlier. It's just natural at times for that those three to kind of pick on the one that's the outlier. And I didn't read that that's what's going on here, but I just have to imagine that she's feeling kind of the, the odd one out in this group. On this evening, Brittany decides to kill a few hours by walking from her hotel to resort about a mile and a half south of her hotel. She had plans to meet up with a 20 year old guy named Peter Brozowitz, she knew from back home and had run into on a previous evening. As we talked about, she's down there for spring break. She's been down there a few days typical spring break these kids are going to go out in their early evening hours and kind of party late into the next day and and sound like this was i believe this night that she went missing was a Sunday night and on the the Friday night those two nights before the 24th she runs into this guy that she knows from back home and they're they're talking and you know hanging out and he's down there with three of his buddies so it's kind of a, a, a group hangout mentality, and so as she's running into some of these conflicts with her friends, and I'm assuming it's even one of those things, too, where those three friends might want to go somewhere and Brittany doesn't want to go there, so she's going to make her own plans, and it sounds like she made her own plans to go down and hang out with this, this Peter guy and his friends at this resort. After this meeting and during a time she was expected to be walking back to her hotel that she suddenly stopped texting her boyfriend. This is where police would start their investigation, and it would be a difficult and tumultuous 13-year ordeal for many people. So as I mentioned before, this is going to be a very difficult missing persons investigation. The city of Myrtle Beach is estimated to have 20 million visitors every year, and spring break is one of the busiest times for the city. When a crime occurs, it's common for the victim and the suspect to be from other locations, sometimes a thousand miles or more from the city and police are tasked with maintaining peace and order in a city that is a non-stop party for two months straight. I'm sure the Myrtle Beach PD gets a large number of missing persons calls during this time period every year. When alcohol and teenage decision making is combined, you end up with drunken hookups, followed by some worried friends that almost always resolve themselves once someone sobers up and either finally looks at their phone or in some cases charges the battery on their phone and they see all the missed texts and calls. So for police, a 17-year-old girl who is down there to have a good time and doesn't reply to her boyfriend or her parents, in the case this case her parents didn't even know she was there, would have seemed like another run-of-the-mill missing, missing persons call for them. But they will start investigating it the following morning, likely due to pressure applied via the Rochester New York Police Department. So we talked about this, it's just kind of reiterating the point that I don't know what the percentage is. I I, I guess if I had to guess, it'd be in the high 90% of the time that a missing person's call to the Myrtle Beach Police Department during spring break is going to be resolved within 12 to 24 hours, where, again, that person who met somebody on spring break ends up in their hotel room. They either pass out or fall asleep, whatever. They've been up partying all night, and now their friends can't get a hold of them at 10 o'clock the next morning, start freaking out. They're not answering their phone. They're not answering their texts. Well, it's because they're either sleeping or because they're staying in somebody else's hotel room that doesn't have a phone charger like theirs. They can't charge their phone and the phone dies. So there's probably a lot of actual plausible explanations why these people go quote unquote missing for a time period when they're on spring break. It's just kind of part of the spring break process, I guess, or the atmosphere however, this is just this is different because, as far as anybody knew, Brittany wasn't into that lifestyle, wasn't going to be doing anything like that. She did have her phone, she didn't text John at all saying, "Hey, my phone's about to die, like most people would when their phone's on you know one percent two percent, whatever it may be to kind of give them a heads up and she had just left not too long ago from the hotel room for this planned meeting with some of her friends so likely she's not going to leave the hotel room with a phone that's at five percent i'm not saying it doesn't happen because it does but it just the circumstances are a little bit different here because it wasn't like they were all out partying and then britney just disappeared in the middle of this party scene with a whole bunch of people around after she was seen talking with some guy and then you know, maybe making out with them and then they leave the club together type of a thing this is Brittany went for a walk, met somebody, stops texting her her boyfriend and nobody can get a hold of her. So police are going to treat this as a missing person. And we do have to remember too that Brittany's 17 years old. So she's not technically an adult. Her parents can list her as a missing person or endangered runaway at any point in time. So the police are going to have to at least start an investigation here. So the police investigation would lead them to question her friends and establish a verif- verifiable timeline from both witnesses, security cameras, and then eventually they're going to look at her cell phone location data. So after police speak with her travel companions that she'd set out, uh, they she, they find out she had settled, set out alone for the Blue Water Resort to meet up with Peter. So police want to go locate security footage and speak to Peter. Now this is where things get kind of sidetracked for the investigation off the get-go when they go to find Peter. Now remember she's being reported as missing. It's the next morning or this is, at least this is when the investigation is going on is the next morning. So nobody has seen or talked to her at least her friends haven't since it was around like eight o'clock or so the evening 8 p.m the evening before. So when police are investigating this 12 hours later, a lot of stuff has happened. And in this case, Peter and his three friends have left the hotel. And that's going to raise a lot of suspicion right off the bat. The police are going to get a hold of him uh, via the phone and talk to him about his meeting with Brittany and what happened and that stuff. And he's going to tell the police that, yes, Brittany came down. They were going to hang out. But it it wasn't like 10 minutes or so into them hanging out that she got a text from one of the girls that she came down with and apparently Brittany had and again this is unverifiable but i don't know if she took the girl's shorts on purpose if she took them on accident if she'd been given permission to wear this girl's shorts and then the girl took away the permission for her to wear shorts but the long and short of it is she gets a text from this girl saying hey i want my shorts that you're wearing And so Brittany, after having walked a mile and a half in flip-flops from the hotel to this resort to hang out, she's there for 10 minutes, says, sorry, i got to go return these shorts, and then she leaves. And now that's the last that Peter's going to see her. And there's going to be some stuff in the media about how, originally this is the stuff in the media about how Peter left so fast that that they they left clothes behind. And basically, from the very get-go, the media went after Peter as this guy who had something to hide and it would later be determined that yes clothes was left behind but it was like stuff that was left on the balcony like a sw- swim trunks and a towel or something like that that were left out to dry so it was, it was an accidental thing it wasn't like he grabbed you know his keys and his wallet and left everything else and ran out the door like they made it sound he's gonna he's gonna tell police yes i did see Brittany last night it was for like 10 minutes and she walked out and they're able to look at security footage and see Britney leaving the resort alone around 8:45 that night. So now the police are going to take the focus of the investigation would turn to what happened between 8:45 and roughly 9:15 when her boyfriend stops receiving texts from from Britney. Now they're going to work on the assumption that Britney left the resort to return the shorts, so they're going to start to look at these cell phone pings and see if she made it back to the hotel, if something happened between the resort and the hotel. And they're actually gonna be surprised because these cell phone pings are gonna show her traveling further south from the resort and her hotel is north of the resort. So if she's walking to return these shorts, her cell phone's heading in the wrong direction. And they're gonna follow these cell phone pings as it continues to travel south until it pinged a final time in Georgetown County, which is five miles south of Myrtle Beach, and this is roughly around 9.45 p.m. The case is gonna quickly get a lot of media attention, so police are gonna start receiving several tips, and there's gonna be tips about Brittany boarding a bus that evening. There's tips about her being seen at a convenience store, but all of these are gonna end without any verification. Because nobody within a few days is hearing anything from Brittany, people start to assume the worst, and there's a bunch of organizations that decide they're going to organize searches. So they're going to have these, for 11 days, they're going to have these groups of 200 to 500 people searching the swampy area down near where the phone pinged last. And searchers would go on to say this is some of the toughest terrain to search in because the ground's always wet and the land is filled with snakes, alligators, and feral hogs. And if you've ever been to... South Carolina, Georgia, Florida—the the swampier areas of those states, especially the stuff close in, kind of by the ocean. This is not terrain that's easy. It's not like you can just walk from, you know, straight line across a, a field. You're not searching, you know, a, a cornfield or even a forest or anything like that. These are swamps, and so oftentimes there's areas you can't even get to because it's waterlogged or you'll sink into your waste in this mud. So. They're going to do their best. They're going to search for 11 days, and nothing related to Brittany is going to be found. There was going to be another theory thrown out there early on in the case, and this is related to Brittany having all the stress in her life. Apparently, she had been recently prescribed antidepressants due to all the stuff that was going on with her life, with her parents' divorce and everything. So some people started to worry, could those antidepressants have caused negative side effects and caused her to take her own life but that was ruled out pretty quickly everybody who they talked to said britney's this young girl full of life full of promise she had never talked about suicide and nothing prior to her disappearing indicated she had any desire to harm herself or end her life so pretty quickly it's going to be ruled out that she didn't run away or commit suicide So then we're going to go through this long path of the next 13 years. So I'll kind of cover it at the major points along the investigation and kind of dissect some of the major points of the investigation as we go along here. But in May of 2009, so this is the month after Brittany goes missing, Peter and his attorney and Don and Chad all appeared on the Dr. Phil show. And this was due to... As I said, there was a lot of negative press towards Peter. And I think it was because of how liberal the media took some of the quote unquote facts of the case that were leaked and then ran with them to jump to some conclusions in regards to Peter's guilt. And they painted this picture again of this guy who's this 20 year old nightclub promoter meets this attractive girl from back home. They, they meet up, and the next thing we know, he's the last person to see this girl alive, and suddenly him and all of his you know, friends pack up in the middle of the night. Like, I think they checked out at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. the next morning, leaving behind some clothing and, and are driving back to New York. And so people kind of connected the dots very quickly to say, this guy's involved. He knows where Brittany is. He's running from the situation. He's got to be guilty. So he gets this attorney and he decides he's going, going to go on the Dr. Phil show to try to clear his name. And it's pretty clear. And And again, I will preface this by saying this is still, you know, within the month of their daughter being missing and them having no answers. But it's pretty clear that Don and Chad believe Peter has something to do with it. And they go after him hard on this Dr. Phil show. And Dr. Phil does a good job of trying to mediate between the two and have them understand things from each other's angles because Don and Chad are just attacking, verbally, but attacking Peter for everything that he did that night. And Peter is in defensive mode, and he does say some things that are pretty stupid, but again, he's 20 years old, and he's getting verbally attacked for something that he knows he didn't do. So he's unfortunately going to say some stupid stuff, but like Don and Chad are going to basically ask him why uh, he was hanging out with their daughter who was a minor in an out-of-state location which again yes peter's 20 and Brittany's 17 Brittany's birthday being october 7th so she's six months away from being 18 and for all we know peter just turned 20 and i'm not saying that Brittany's parents didn't have a right to ask him this but they kind of went after him as he's hanging out with his minor well from everything that I could read there's no indications that they did anything other than hang out and talk and it's not like the guy's 40 or 50 years old hanging out with a 17 year old that the, the two of them talking even seems kind of out of place like again it's two and a half years difference I mean it'd be the same as a few years down the road of saying a you know, 24 and a 21-year-old are hanging out talking, so it definitely seemed like Peter was facing some accusations that were kind of unfair towards him. They also really challenged him, Don and Chad did, on the fact that he didn't walk Brittany home that night, and Peter would go on to say that he did offer to walk Brittany home or back to the hotel, and she refused and said she'd been walking alone for the last couple days it was no big deal peter said it was still light out because i think that was what one of the parents said something you made her walk home alone in the dark and he's like the sun was still up so it wasn't dark it was you know 8 30 at night and he's like and then he made the stupid comment that he wasn't in myrtle beach to babysit so I think he was getting frustrated at that point, but it definitely didn't do well, didn't play well, I guess, with the general public when he made that comment because it just showed a lack of maturity on his part. But ultimately, oh, and then they also challenged him on why he didn't call the police right away when he found out that Brittany was missing because... I guess this information is going to somehow get to him before the police contact him. And the, Chad and Don were upset that he didn't, upon immediately upon hearing that Brittany was missing, didn't pick up his phone and call the police and say, hey, I was the last person with Brittany. And you can look at that two ways. One, you can look at that as, yes, that would have been the more mature, more responsible thing to do. But you could also look at it from he's probably scared to death once he finds out about this, knowing there's a potential that he was the last person to see her alive and now he's going to be interjected into this, potentially blamed for something that he didn't do. So there's I can see both sides of it, but ultimately it's going to end with you know no further information being obtained via this Dr. Phil thing. Oh, and then he would also say that about the leaving in the middle of the night that they had this like 16, 17 hour car ride ahead of them and they didn't want to mess with traffic right off the, the first thing out the, the next day as they were leaving the resort. And they were all up anyway, so it was just kind of a group mentality of like, well, let's just leave now. We gotta check out in the morning anyway. And I mean, I've been there before. I've, I've experienced that with whether it be friends or even myself where I can't sleep or I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep. I might as well be driving. And if you're doing one of these drives where it's 16, 17 hours and you got three, four guys in the car and somebody's already up and willing to drive for those first four or five hours, drive for four or five hours and then you shift or switch and then that person can sleep. So really, I think it was more of a bad optics situation than anything else and people just looking for someone to blame for this the disappearance of of britney at this point now thankfully police are going to look at other suspects on sometimes on these investigations when a suspect looks to be the the one true suspect in a case they'll focus in on that person and ignore evidence in other situations it's and that wasn't the case here They did have several other people of interest that they were looking at. But at this point in the investigation, they aren't really releasing a lot of information in regards to these other people they're looking at. Now, on June 6th, Brittany's story was aired on America's Most Wanted. And early on in an investigation like this, the goal of the parents, the, the investigators, is to keep this thing out in front of people. The more you can get the information out there get britney's picture out there they're still hoping for a a resolution where britney is brought home alive then we jump to october 10th this is going to be kind of a heartbreaking story chad receives a call from britney's cell phone on october 10th however it turns out the cell phone company had recycled britney's number and given it to a new account and that person was returning a call made by chad to the phone because Chad often called Brittany's number with the hope that she would pick up one day. So this is, again, six months, roughly six months after she goes missing, and I'm sure it's sometimes is going to be a somewhat therapeutic thing for somebody. They'll call the number just to hear the voicemail of the person that's missing or dead. They'll call and leave voicemails because they feel like they're actually potentially talking to, in this case, their daughter. and. You know this is going to go on, and of course he's not going to be getting any responses. But eventually he's likely going to call and leave a voice message, or just call the number, even if he doesn't get to the voicemail part of it. And this other person is going to just got this phone, looks down and sees his number, and I don't know who this is, but I better call him back. And that moment in which Chad's getting a phone call back from Brittany's number must have been, you know, one of the most hope-filled moments of his life and then to turn around and have that crushed by the fact that no this is now somebody who has you know his daughter's number and that avenue of therapy is even gone from him so and then we move on forward into 2010 in june Brittany's going to be given an honorary diploma from her high school and at the same month there's going to be a report of an attempted kidnapping in myrtle beach This is going to be a kidnapping in which a 20-year-old girl claimed two men jumped out of a van and tried to kidnap her. And investigators are immediately going to think of the Brittany Drexel case. And the suspect in this case was a male identified as Timothy Sean Taylor, a 55-year-old man. And I tried to find more information because this is going to come up to come up later in this case so i tried to find more information about this because it says the charges against taylor were dropped five months later but there's nothing in there no news articles that related to why police stopped investigating this so i don't know if this was a case where this quote-unquote abduction was made up by somebody looking to get attention if this was a robbery that looked more like an abduction. It's it's hard without having any other information. I really don't want to speculate. All I know is that this guy is identified as a suspect, and the charges are dropped five months later. On August first, two thousand ten, an apartment belonging to a registered sex offender named Raymond Moody was searched. Although he didn't live here anymore, it was an apartment he was living in during the time of Brittany's disappearance, and he would be named a person of interest in the case. And it says apartment here, and then later on it said it was like a hotel room, uh, and sound like a pretty cheap hotel room, like one of your rent by the week uh, situation. So this Raymond Moody, he's a registered sex offender, and I don't know how he came on their radar back in 2010, but it was just noted that he was that his apartment he was living in at that time in in April of 2009 was searched. For the next three years, it's a lot of media campaigns championed by Don in an effort to keep her daughter's story out there in hope someone has information that will help find Brittany. And in December of 2013, skeletal remains found in the area where Brittany went missing again brought a lot of media attention to the case, but it was determined that these remains belonged to a male. Then in 2016, a bombshell was dropped that ramped up the investigation once again. A man named Taquan Brown, who was incarcerated at the time, stated that, back in 2009, he saw Brittany in a stash house in McKellenville, South Carolina. He said he saw her being sexually assaulted by a then 16-year-old named Timothy Deshawn Taylor, who was the son of Timothy Sean Taylor, who we talked about earlier, the man who was arrested in 2010 for allegedly trying to abduct the 20-year-old in Myrtle Beach. Now. Taquan Brown would go on to say that a few days later he saw Brittany again at the stash house and she tried to escape and four men caught her and drug her back inside the house before he heard gunshots. He then testified that he saw a rolled up carpet supposedly with Brittany's body in it being carried to a truck where she would be dropped into alligator and hog infested swamps. This younger Taylor, the one that Brown claims he saw sexually assaulting Brittany, had been investigated for being the getaway driver in an armed robbery at a McDonald's back in 2011. Five years later, investigators were ready to charge him with the robbery, but offered him a sweetheart deal if he'd tell the truth about Brittany. Having made claims he knew nothing about it, he agreed to a polygraph, and the FBI examiner said he was being deceptive when asked about Brittany and answering the following questions. Do you know who was involved in her disappearance, and did you ever see Brittany in person? After being told that he had failed, Taylor became irate and refused to answer any more questions. He was deemed to have violated his plea agreement and was looking at 10 to 20 years in prison for the robbery charges. Taylor's lawyers fired back, saying the accusations by Brown were baseless and a desperate attempt to reduce the sentence he was serving. Chad Drexel believed the Taylors were involved and gave a public statement that he believes that they were involved and wants a grand jury to convene to see if there's evidence to charge them. Now, this is going to go on for this investigation is actually going to go on for quite some time. However, in twenty seventeen and some bad luck for Taylor, one of his attorneys is arrested by police for DUI and cocaine possession. And then in twenty nineteen, Taylor, having originally been looking at serving up to twenty years in prison for the robbery, is released and given three years probation. And I couldn't find anything in the time frame in between. In twenty sixteen, everybody's coming after. This guy, as the son of a guy who tried to kidnap another girl, supposedly, and the FBI's saying this is our guy, and they believe that Brittany was kidnapped and held in this house for three or four days, and then executed and thrown into these alligator pits. And this story is running rampant throughout the media, and, and everybody thinks this is this is it, we've got the answer, we know what happened to Brittany Drexel. And then all of a sudden, it just kind of disappears and then all of a sudden in 2019 Taylor's released from prison and given three years of probation so I don't know if if Taquan Brown admitted that he lied and now investigators or prosecutors in this case realize they basically made a sweetheart deal with somebody he told the truth and they punished him for it so they're going to let him out I mean there's still a lot of rightfully so there's still a lot of negative feelings towards investigators prosecutors this taquan brown and even Brittany's family to a certain degree i mean i can understand how desperate they are for answers and how badly they want this to be resolved at this point but it seems like whenever police or investigators start to look at somebody both chad and don were just coming out with all guns firing, that this has to be the person. Now, I will say in this case, like I said, Chad wanted a grand jury to convene. It's not like he came out and said, I want this guy charged. He wanted the truth. And so I get that, and I get to a certain degree them going after Peter during that Dr. Phil thing, believing that he, but it, again, it's just this this pattern of any t- time investigators start to go down a path, they were they were going after the suspect as if this is it, this is the only possible explanation. And again, I understand it. I don't blame them for it at all. It just, it's part of the process and it's just something that we're going to see in a lot of these cases we talk about. Unfortunately, for the people that are innocent, in this case, Peter and uh, Timothy Taylor, it's hard for them to have to come out afterwards and say oh we understand everything you put me through because of what you were going through I mean it just all the stuff that they had to go through was so difficult as well that it's just it puts everybody in a bad and that's why I said this next 13 years are going to be a roller coaster of you know ups and downs for for Brittany's parents for different suspects in the case for investigators and everything so that's where we were at the end of 2019. Taylor's at this point is believed to not have any involvement in the case. He's, he's released from prison on those robbery charges. And and I'm guessing he was, I don't know, somewhere around 17, 18 years old when this robbery went down and he didn't have much for criminal history. I don't think at least a violent criminal history. So if it wasn't for the accusations of Taquan Brown, I don't think he would have been given a very lengthy sentence in the first place. The only reason he received one is because they perceived him to be involved in the the Brittany Drexel case, and so it was kind of one of those let's put him away until he talks to somebody in prison or he decides he wants to make a deal with us. And when they realized he really wasn't involved, they kind of went had to go. Ugh, let's let's get him out of there. So. Then 2022 comes along, and then this is the news reports everyone's been waiting for. One of the original persons of interest, who we mentioned before, Raymond Moody, was arrested and charged with obstruction of justice and would eventually be charged in Brittany's disappearance and death. So who's this Raymond Moody we, that we talked about before and are talking about now? There's a lot of sites out there like Murderpedia and a couple others that are really great sources for the actual information on the murderers. You can find out a lot about their life, uh, where they were born, different things like that, either because it's such a recent case where Moody was arrested or whether there just isn't much information out there about him. There, everything that I read or could find on him was related to the Brittany Drexel case. So I'm just going off what I could find in the research, and that is that in 1983 in California, he's charged with sexually assaulting and raping a girl under the age of 14. And he's given a 40-year sentence, which after just coming off some of the stuff we talked about with the Ogre of the Ardennes and the East Erga Rapist and how lightly things like rape were looked at. Now, granted, this is a girl under the age of 14, but still, it made me think that either there was multiple victims or something that he did during the sexual assault or before or after was so heinous that the judge gives him this 40 year sentence. But I mean, good for the judge. That's, that's what we wanna see. We wanna see somebody who, who destroys somebody else's life be put in prison for, the, for at least close to the rest of theirs. But as we've seen so many times before, he's gonna be released in about half that time. So he's gonna serve roughly 20 years of his 40 year sentence and get, be released in 2003. Uh, research did say he was linked to a missing missing woman in 2005, but there wasn't really much further information about that case. It just said that he wasn't cooperating with that case. Uh, we talked about Moody being looked at early on in the, the stages of this investigation. And again, I couldn't find why they honed in on him other than just he's a sex offender that's living in the area in which this crime occurs. And there was no evidence found as far as I could see in that apartment the, the year after the disappearance. So I, don't, so I had to ask myself, how did, this, how did he all of a sudden come back on their radar? From what I found, a fresh look at the case allowed investigators to use some advancements in technology that hadn't been around at the time of the disappearance. Mostly, this was more accurate cell locations for the phone Moody was using at the time. And this is despite him claiming to have not been in the area, both his phone and his girlfriend's phone were shown to be in the area of the resort at the time Brittany went missing and I, I read somewhere that they could actually pinpoint it down to within a minute of time he was at this at this resort. So there was a, kind of like a minute of time where he was stopped at this resort right around the same time after Brittany's seen leaving the surveillance video. So not only has he lied to the police about not being in the area at the time, he's in the area with potential for direct contact with Brittany at the time she goes missing. They also went on to search, I think it was vehicle citations, and showed a ticket that was linked to Moody's car that that was issued in the area where Brittany's phone went missing in 2009. So. Again, I don't know if this was information that wasn't available during the initial investigation or if they were able to find a vehicle that they didn't know that was associated with him that then all of a sudden had to ticket in the area. But they start to tie things together, and they know going after Moody's likely not going to produce a lot of results, but they decide instead they're going to go after Moody's girlfriend. And... Everything that I could see, it looked like they were still a couple and had been since 2009, but they're going to approach her. She's a woman named Angel Vouse, and she had been interviewed on several occasions after the disappearance of Brittany and had now. And she gave information then that was now known to be a lie to investigators. So they're going to tell her she's going to be facing charges for accessory to murder, accessory to kidnapping Basically, she's going to get a pretty lengthy prison sentence if she doesn't agree to cooperate. And she does agree to cooperate and gives what's called a proffer statement. Now, a proffer statement is a form of immunity in which you can admit to assisting in certain elements of a crime, but you're not going to be charged as long as you cooperate and you tell the truth. So if you're a somewhat unwilling participant or even if you're just along for the ride, And something bad happens you can still be charged with crimes but a proffer statement allows you to give information to the police that otherwise normally would be deemed more as a confession and would lead to charges but in this case as long as you don't say I just went along for the ride and then they later find out that no you in fact were the one that pulled the trigger you don't get immunity then You're, you're gonna face charges But if you're just going along for the ride and that's found to be accurate or true, then the the information you're providing, even if it puts you as an accomplice or just an unwilling participant of the crime, you're not going to be charged. So she agrees to give this proffer statement and she tells investigators she was with Moody as a passenger in his car. He was driving and they were just cruising down the street, Myrtle Beach, spring break, and they're quote unquote people watching. And he sees Brittany walking away from the resort, and he pulls up next to her and offers her a ride. Now, again, this is all stuff coming from him, and some of it's coming from from Angel Valls, but a lot of this is going to come from him later. We don't have another person tell the other side of the story on this, but he's going to say he drives up next to Brittany, offers her a ride, and offers he's got some weed that they can go smoke. And that Brittany gets in and they drove to a campground nearby. And this is going to fall back to the Ogre of the Ardennes case. And if it's true, because there really isn't any indication that Brittany put up a struggle at this point, that he hopped out and you know threw her in the car or somehow in the middle of this busy spring break atmosphere was able to force her into a car without anybody seeing. So it is possible that she sees this guy and this woman and they seem like, nice people what you know and they're gonna give her a ride and smoke some weed and spring break so whatever dude that and that's why only why i say the weed thing for all we know they pulled up and just said hey looks like you're walking she's wearing flip-flops can we give you a ride to your hotel and she gets in but the the point of it is she's probably gets in that car because angel's in the car and she's thinking this guy with this girl nothing's going to happen to me if it was just moody she likely wouldn't have gotten in the car, so Voss is going to say that they they drove to this campground to smoke this weed, and she gets a phone call from her son at this time, needing her to come home to do whatever. So she's going to leave, and that's going to leave Moody and Brittany alone at the campsite. And then she doesn't, she's not able to provide any further witness statements because she's not there for the rest of it. And prosecutors are going to need to verify this. They're basically going to tell Vals, we need proof of this, that the fact that you didn't have involvement and stuff, otherwise your proffer statement doesn't stand. So you got to wear a wire and talk with Moody. So Vals agrees she's going to wear a wire and talk to Moody about the incident. And while there's not a lot of information out there about this, it appears that they were successful because they're able to get an, uh, an arrest warrant for Moody and Moody turns himself in. From everything that I saw, I'm guessing they used the if you don't cooperate with us, your girlfriend's going to prison as well angle with him. And I believe that's what eventually worked. And so he's going to confess to attacking, sexually assaulting and then strangling Brittany in the campground and then driving her body 35 miles away to to bury it. And he would go on to say he knew as soon as he attacked her that he had to kill her or he's going back to jail. Moody took investigators to the site where Brittany was buried, and her remains and identifying jewelry was re- was recovered. And the remains were later identified as Brittany through dental records. On October 19th of 2012, 62-year-old Raymond Moody pled guilty to kidnapping, rape, and murder, and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Brittany's mom, Don, would state that the prison system of California failed in its duty to keep others safe by releasing moody 20 years earlier and had he done his full time which would have been about until now 2023 britney would still be alive today britney's remains were officially laid to rest during a memorial service in june of 2022 which gave the family a chance to say a formal goodbye and a place to visit her in the future now just in conclusion here just a couple points uh one thing i have brought up is that There was a lot of beliefs at the beginning of the investigation that Brittany may have been grabbed as a part of a sex trafficking ring. And then this was due to her looks and Don believed she could have been tricked into someone offering her a modeling shoot or something along those lines. And then this person drugged and kidnapped her. And it was an angle that investigators had to consider in the beginning. It was something that was looked into. And while it wasn't the answer in the end, it doesn't mean that cases like this don't have a sex trafficking angle to it. Because even if it's not like the movie Taken, where it's overseas foreign sex trafficking, there's a lot of cases where vulnerable women and girls, whether they be runaways or in this case, and Brittany kind of was a runaway in in a way, she didn't have permission to be where she was, but where they get themselves into compromising positions and nobody's looking for them right off the bat and that gives the suspects time to get them hooked on drugs and turn them into sex workers and and ship them somewhere where nobody's looking for them. And it it happens all too often, and something that needs to end, but it's something that was brought up in this case, looked at, and ultimately we know now was not the case. But many people believed in the beginning and, and all throughout the investigation that was a strong possibility. As for the crime scene, there isn't really much to break down in regards to evidence. In this case, you know, 13 years later, there's not going to be much left behind. and it wasn't really in the end. it wasn't a who done it. Moody didn't take it to trial and and try to take you know Angel's statement against his and claim he lied on the wire and now there's no physical evidence to link him to the crime. They had all they had for true evidence was the the cell phone pings that put him in the area of Brittany and, and the fact that he lied. So unless he had been caught like within the first few days of this investigation, and then they, you know they have potential crime scenes and, and a vehicle to process to show that Brittany was in there, it's, it's kind of one of those things where after this amount of time, there's not going to be a lot of physical evidence left, and the only place where there would potentially be evidence would be the clandestine grave that they came across, you know that Moody pointed to, to them to, I should say every once in a while with those clandestine graves you're going to find that whoever dug the grave leave something behind at you know, in the process that can be linked back to them but thankfully moody agreed to confess to this so it didn't get to the point where it needed argument uh, evidence needed to be argued in front of a jury because really the, again there wouldn't have been a lot of direct physical evidence connecting him to the crime it would have just been all the electronic evidence and and basically uh, his girlfriend's statement. Conclusion: it was via the unending love of a mother and father that wanted answers and justice for their daughter and the investigators who didn't give up that resulted in an ending for the story. It's not the ending people hoped for but it was an ending that came with answers and justice that's it for the case of Brittany Drexel. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true crime productions at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at true blue crime productions. And please, if you can support me on Patreon via true blue crime productions, appreciate everybody sticking around, listen to the episode. You guys have a great day. Talk to you later. Goodbye.